welcome to the Trinity Reformed Church Podcast. Sermon by Chris Wiley on May 14th, Lord's Day Service. with you yet again, uh, once again I should say, and uh, before I go any further, uh, let me read a portion of God's Word for you from Ecclesiastes. I'm continuing this uh, periodic uh, series of messages from the book of Ecclesiastes. Some of you who were here last time, I hope will remember that I started off with the first couple of chapters, and now I'm in chapters three and four, and the reading um, is a little bit long, but Hopefully, I'll be able to keep your attention. For everything, there is a season and a time for every matter under heaven, a time to be born and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to pluck up what is planted, a time to kill and a time to heal, a time to break down and a time to build up, a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance, a time to cast away stones, a time to gather stones together, a time to embrace, and a time to refrain from embracing, a time to seek and a time to lose, a time to keep and a time to cast away, a time to tear and a time to sow, a time to keep silence and a time to speak, a time to love and a time to hate, a time for war and a time for peace. What gain has the worker from his toil? I have seen the business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with, He has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. I perceive that there is nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. Also, that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. This is God's gifts, or gift to man. I perceive that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it, nor anything taken from it. God has done it, so that people fear before him. That which is, already has been. That which is to be, already has been. And God seeks what has been driven away. Moreover, I saw under the sun that in the place of justice, even there was wickedness. And in the place of righteousness, even there was wickedness. I said in my heart, God will judge the righteous uh, and the wicked, for there is a time for every matter and for every work. I said in my heart with regard to the children of man that God is testing them, that they may see that they themselves are but beasts. For what happens to the children of man and what happens to the beast is the same. As one dies, so dies the other. They all have the same breath, and man has no advantage over the beasts, for all is vanity. All go to one place, all are from the dust, and to dust all return. Who knows whether the spirit of man goes upward and the spirit of the beast goes down into the earth? So I saw that there is nothing better than that a man should rejoice in his work, for that is his lot. Who can bring him to see what what, uh, will be after him? 
chapter 4. Again, I saw all the oppressions that are done under the sun, and behold, the tears of the oppressed, and they had no one to comfort them. On one side of their oppressors, there was power, and there was no one to comfort them. And I thought the dead who are already dead more fortunate than the living who are still alive, but better than both is he who has not yet been born and has not seen the evil deeds that are done under the sun. Then I saw that, it, that all toil and all skill and work come from man's envy of his neighbor. This also is vanity and striving after wind. A fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh. Better is a handful of quietness than two hands full of toil and striving after wind. Again, I saw vanity under the sun. One person who has no other, either son or brother, yet there is no end to all his toil, and his eyes are never satisfied with riches, so that he never asks, for whom am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? This also is vanity and an unhappy business. Two are better than one, because they have a good re reward for all their toil. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow, but woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. Again, if two lie together, they keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will, stand, uh, will withstand him. A three-four cord is not quickly broken. Better was a poor and wise youth than an old and foolish king who no longer knew how to take advice. For he went from prison to the throne, though his own kingdom, he had been born poor. I saw all the living who move about under the sun, along with that youth who was to stand in the king's place. There was no end of all the people, all of whom he led, yet those who come later will not rejoice in him. Surely this also is vanity and striving and a striving after wind. The word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart will be acceptable to you, for you are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Well, as uh, many of you note or, or know, uh, Ecclesiastes was written by Solomon, Solomon the Wise. Solomon, uh, who, uh, if he had a T-shirt, uh, the T-shirt could say, I uh, have been there, I've done that, I've seen it all, and here's my report. It doesn't live up to the hype. <laughs> Basically, you know, what you have here in this, the, these two chapters is, is, is a sense of ennui, that uh, when you give yourself over to the goods of this life, you come away looking for more. Something more is required. Something you're longing for has not been experienced. Well, we uh, often associate Solomon with wisdom, and there's good reasons for that. Uh, when we think about wisdom, I think it's important for us to note that when it comes to the various categories that we uh, place pr uh, particular portions of Scripture in, wisdom is one of those. I think sometimes in our uh, tradition as Reformed uh, Christians, we, 
we zero in on law and gospel and forget about that third category. The third category is not sort of uh, binary in nature. The third category is attuned to sort of the realities on the ground. And when the realities on the ground that you experience in the course of your lives sometimes uh, mean uh, that you have to choose between two good things or two bad things. It isn't always the good and the bad. I think we're reminded of this every election. You know, which is the greater evil? And then you uh, do the best you can. But that's, uh, you know, what we have to rely on or have to do when we rely upon wisdom to sort of deal with the realities on the ground in life. It isn't always just a simple matter of this is the right path. Perhaps there is a kind of good, better, and best set of paths that you can take. It's kind of like, I remember Sears. You remember, there used to be a, a, a department store called Sears. I don't know if some of the young people are aware of that. But you'd go there and you'd go to the uh, you know, various departments of the store and you'd see three options, good, better, and best. There was never like really terrible, poorly made, then like acceptable, and then like actually works. It was like good, better, and best. And you wondered, you know, why would anyone choose just the good? Well, because the good was less expensive. And that's the sort of thing that wisdom is good for. It's helping us to sort of discern how to behave when it comes to the realities on the ground. Now, when we think about wisdom, there are some things that are often associated with the quest for wisdom. There is a uh, famous account of uh, people in Greece who would go to the oracle at Delphi. And uh, what they saw at, at, the, uh, at the oracle at Delphi is uh, a sign that read, Know Thyself. And so wisdom has become, or has been understood as a, an endeavor to know yourself, not in an egotistical sense, but just to, to, to sort of know what you're dealing with when you're dealing with yourself. The problem, of course, is um, it's very difficult for a person who lacks wisdom to know himself and, and grow in wisdom. And this is why the fear of the Lord is the beginning of, of wisdom and why we need God's law to reveal to us not only what God is like, but what we are like and how far short we fall when it comes to God's standards. The problem with that, of course, is this process of self-discovery when we turn to God's law is painful. It's uh, not necessarily good news we receive when we hear that uh, we're sinners before a holy God. And it's because that's the case, because so often we fall short of the ideals that uh, even uh, we as sinners uh, know to be true, that we want something else to keep our minds occupied with. Uh, we look for diversion, or we seek out ways to divert our minds or uh, indulge uh, in diversions. And uh, this actually is something that uh, Blaise Pascal, the great thinker, uh, noted is a, a way to increase our misery. Let me, let me give you a little quote from Blaise Pascal. Blaise Pascal invented the calculator, uh, was a, uh, just one of these polymaths uh, who was a great mathematician, scientist, and theologian and philosopher. Um, and he said this, the only thing that consoles us for our miseries is diversion. He's referring to, of course, that little handheld device you keep in your pocket that helps you, you know, pass the time. And yet, it is the greatest of our miseries 
For it is that above all which prevents us thinking about ourselves and leads us imperceptibly to destruction. But for that we should be bored. And boredom would drive us to seek some more solid means of escape. But diversion passes our time and brings us imperceptibly to our death. Have you ever wondered why God invented boredom? Perhaps it was for this reason, <laughs> that it would drive you to dealing with or bring you uh, to a place where you, f you needed to deal with things that you needed to deal with. I'm bored. Good. Do some thinking about your life. That's perhaps what boredom is for, and that's what uh, Blaise Pascal is bringing to our attention. Now, returning to the text, we see in the text that wisdom also knows what time it is. If we look at those uh, first few verses there in chapter 3, we see that there's a time for everything. There's a time for this, a time for that. There's even a time for things that we don't think there should be any time for, like killing and warfare. There are times for those things. And everything is beautiful in its time. In other words, what's appropriate for that time is what is beautiful in that time. So there's a season for everything. I think what this brings to my mind anyway is an important distinction that uh, you can see in the Greek language when it comes to this subject of time. When we think of time, we tend to think about it in a chronological sense. The Greek word that that word chronology is derived from is chronos, which means just sort of one thing after another or one moment following another. When a little child says, I'm four years old and I will soon be four and a half. Well, that's chronology, that's chronological time that is being marked off by the child. But there's also a sense that the child has of another kind of time, which is kairos time, the opportune moment. When someone has been, you know, seems to have good timing when it comes to his or her choices, we, we're getting at that. We're, set, we're in effect saying that that person, because of the, the sense of timing that that person possesses, whether, whether it's regarding you know, uh, what to say and when to say it with regard to social interactions or what you do in the stock market, we say that person has good timing or has a sense of what's appropriate at that time. We're talking about kairos time. And uh, I think that's also what a little child has in mind when he says, I will soon be four and a half, because he thinks that at that time, it will be an opportune moment for doing things that he wants to do. So those are the things to keep in mind when we think about time. But with regard to time, as we experience it in our lives, uh, there is a sense that we have that there are certain matters that are just actually bigger than either of those categories. There's a sense that we possess, because we're made in God's image, that there, is some, there are some that, things that are eternal in character, and because they're eternal in character, um, they don't necessarily fit in either one of those categories. And we have a longing for those things. And this is what we see Solomon getting at here in chapter 3, verse 11. He has made everything beautiful in its, in its time. Then the second sentence of that verse reads, Also he has put eternity into man's heart, 
yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. Eternity in the heart. There's a sense in which there is a longing that we possess for, th uh, uh, for things that can't fit into the lives that we lead in our world. There's a marvelous German word. Germans have a, have a propensity to coin new words and, and often sort of express things that we kind of feel and know, uh, but we maybe in our language don't have a word for. One of those words is Sehnsucht. I'm probably pronouncing that awfully or terribly. If you speak German, if you're a native German speaker, forgive me. But uh, that word is a word that's important, and it was important for C.S. Lewis. The, word, the, the book that's entitled Surprised by Joy, the, the word joy is refer, referring to the, this thing, this, this sort of, sort of uh, capacity of the soul that's expressed with the word Sehnsucht. Now, let me uh, read to you something that C.S. Lewis said about that term, and I think it relates to this whole matter of eternity being in the heart. Sehnsucht is, according to C.S. Lewis, that unnameable something, desire for which pierces us like a rapier at the smell of a bonfire, the sound of wild ducks flying overhead, the title, The Well at the World's End, the opening lines of Kublai Khan, the morning cobwebs in late summer, or the noise of falling waves. There's something about those things. Maybe, those all, maybe some of those don't work for you. I know that some of those don't work for me, but I know that when I read this passage for the, you know, the first time, uh, the well at the world's end and his reference to Kublai Khan, I said, I know what he's talking about. I know what he's talking about. There's something that he's referring to here that, uh, you know, that's as close as we can get to. The sort of sense that we possess that there's something more that can't be contained uh, in the time that we've been given. I think it also relates to what uh, Augustine was getting at in his confessions when he refers to the restless heart. Let me read to you a passage from the confessions that I believe ties into this very matter or relates to this matter. Here Augustine says, Thou hast made us for thyself, O Lord, and our heart is restless until it finds its rest in thee. Eternity in the heart. Consequently, that means that there's always going to be a sense of discontent regardless of how good things are in our lives. There's something more that we long for, that the good things that we enjoy in this world can only remind us of, but don't fully satisfy, don't fully address. Now I want to talk about wisdom uh, a little more as it relates to some very distressing matters. And this is one of the things that we can say about Solomon is he doesn't shy away from talking about things that I think are easy to leave unsaid. Uh, wisdom seeks understanding and he notes uh, that uh, wisdom seeks understanding in three areas. The meaning of toil, the reasons for injustice, and the significance of death. All of those matters have a way of kind of capturing our attention. What's the meaning 
when it, uh, with regard to all the toil that we have been given over to. So let me take you to chapter 4, verse 4. Here Solomon says, Then I saw that all toil and all skill in work come from a man's envy of his neighbor. This also is vanity and a striving after wind. And then in verse 5 he says, almost as though he says, don't take that too far. The fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh. In other words, we're dealing with wisdom here, measuring our lives out in the right way so that we toil, but we don't toil for the wrong reasons. We rest, but we don't overdo that either. So toil, its meaning, what is it all for? Are we really seeking to strive for those things that genuinely serve our good? Or are we driven just simply to prove that we're better than the people around us? Envy. Keeping up with the Joneses, that kind of stuff. That's something that is very difficult to resolve to anyone's satisfaction. Why did I do that? You know, this whole process of sort of analysis that, uh, that we can engage in, it's sort of like peeling away the layers of the onion, right? You know, you, you peel away a layer and what do you discover? Another layer. And then you peel away yet another layer and what do you get? Another layer. And you just keep going and you know what happens, you're crying by the time you get the connection, right? You realize that only God truly knows you. You can't even know yourself. Why do you do what you do? It's good to ask. It's difficult to resolve that matter you know, fully and completely. But as is noted here, uh, the fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh. So toil, even though uh, you may do it for the wrong reason. But don't overdo it because in verse 8 he tells us that uh, that the eye is never satisfied. One person, this is verse 8, one person who has no other, either son or brother, yet there is no end to all his toil, and his eyes are never satisfied with riches. So he never asks, for whom am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? I think it was John Rockefeller who was asked, how much money will it take before you're satisfied? He was a very wealthy man. Uh, the response, according to at least uh, what I've heard, was one dollar more. There's just no end to this stuff. The quest for wealth. The eye is never satisfied. The next matter that he addresses is uh, the problem of injustice. You see him talk about that in verse 16 of chapter 3. It says, moreover, I saw... Under the sun, that in the place of justice, even there was wickedness. And in the place of righteousness, even there was wickedness. It's distressing to know that we have unjust judges, right? It's distressing to discover that some men of the cloth, men who ostensibly represent the Lord, are actually just simply representing their own interests and are on the make. So wickedness can exist in the church, can exist in the courts, uh, in the very institutions that we have established to order our lives so that they can be well-ordered and just themselves. We rely upon unjust people to, uh, to oversee uh, the, the welfare of our communities. So there's corruption in the place of justice. You notice this again in chapter 4, verse 1. Again, I saw 
all the oppressions that are done under the sun, and behold, the tears of the oppressed, and they had no one to comfort them. What we have then is a problem. And it's understandable that idealistic young people uh, would uh, feel a need to go on a quest to you know, right the wrongs of the world. I want to give you some good news and bad news, young folks. That's a good impulse. The bad news is your father had the same impulse. And your grandfather had that impulse. And your great-grandfather had that impulse. And guess what? The problems are still there. Doesn't mean we can't make a difference. Doesn't mean that things aren't better than they have been in the past. But it doesn't mean that you should get so caught up in your, uh, you know, your quest and your crusade to change the world that you lose touch with the fact that you're really no better than your father. You're really no better than your mother. Don't flatter yourself. Don't assume that you've got it figured out and everybody before you were born was an idiot. If you read a little bit, you'll discover that there are a lot of folks who are dead knew a lot more than you. It's an important thing to remember. Nevertheless, these matters will be addressed because God will judge. I think we're afraid that someone's going to get away with something. No one's going to get away with anything. In the end, every matter will be judged. We may not live to see it. This is where faith is required. But we can see with the eye of faith that a just God won't leave these matters unaddressed. And that's what we see here in, with, uh, with regard to Solomon. And we see in verse uh, 17 of chapter 3, I said in my heart, God will judge the righteous and the wicked. And then he reminds us, is what he has said before, for there is a time for every matter and for every work. The final judgment hasn't come yet. If it had, it would be a whole new world. <laughs> but we're waiting for that. But it will come. Now, probably the most depressing aspect or element within this passage of Scripture that I read had to do with the subject of death. Did you, just, did you sense kind of the ennui, you know, with regard to, you know, Solomon's outlook? What we see here uh, is a longing for something that... You know, it's debatable whether he had any in, in sort of inclination could possibly occur. But what he's longing for is what we as Christians on the other side of the resurrection can look back on, but what he had to look forward to, and that's what? The resurrection. But prior to the resurrection, what were the conclusions that uh, you could uh, arrive at when you thought about the subject of death? Well, he's, he tells us there in chapter 3, verses 18 through 21. He says there, I said in my heart with regard to the children of man that God is testing them, that they may see that they themselves are but beasts. There you go. Bible flattering us. <laughs> For what happens to the children of man and what happens to the beast is the same. As one dies, so dies the other. They all have the same breath. And man has no advantage over the beasts, for all is vanity. Now, the last time I was with you, I, I noted that the word that we translate into the English word vanity is the Hebrew word hebel, which means vapor. What he's noting here is that our breath is vaporous. 
it will eventually evaporate beneath the heat of the sun as we lead our lives in this world. We will find ourselves passing away just like our pets and our animals and the wild creatures around us. And then he says in verse 20, all go to one place. And what's that place? The dust. All are from the dust, and to dust all return. Then he entertains the question, what is the destiny of the spirit? And he just throws up his hands. He's just working as an empiricist here. He's just saying, I don't know. Who can say? Who knows whether the spirit of man goes upward and the spirit of the beast goes down into the earth? So then he sort of shrugs his shoulders and says in verse 22, so I saw that there is nothing better than that a man should rejoice in his work, for that is his lot. Who can bring him to see what will be after him? Well, with all those cheerful thoughts, you're probably saying to yourself, well, what's the good news? What's the good news that we as Christians have uh, to celebrate? And I'd like to reflect on that with you a little bit. But before I do, I want you to at least entertain the possibility that what I've just done is very important. And what Solomon has done for us is very important. Disillusionment, disillusionment is a good thing. If you have an illusion, it needs to be dissed. Right? Who wants to live, you know, by illusion, uh, sort of an illusory sense of what is the case? You need reality. You don't need falsehoods. The world that we live in, the world that surrounds us, you know, as uh, Pastor Matt said, Netflix and all of that, it's all designed to divert our eyes from unpleasant realities. It's intended to keep our minds occupied with things that are frivolous in character. Now, sometimes uh, there is, you know, interest in the matters that I just discussed, you know, or I should say Solomon discussed the nature of work, justice and injustice, even life and death, but never getting to the place where people, you know, realize that no matter what occurs in the course of our lives, there is something to human beings that can never be satisfied by anything in this life or in this world. Eternity in the heart. Eternity in the heart. You have a longing for something that even the best ordered society uh, will not be able to satisfy. In fact, that well-ordered society might distract you from the really important matter at hand. So disillusionment is good, and wisdom is cultivated in the house of mourning. I'd like to take you forward a little bit in Ecclesiastes, chapter 7, where you see this very statement, or this very truth stated. It's in verse 4. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. There's a place for sadness in your life. There's a place for disillusionment in your life. There's a place uh, in your life for, for a lack of contentment. And the reason there's a place in your life for these things is because if you respond to these realities in the right way, 
it will drive you to the one who can satisfy what you're really longing for. And that is someone who is eternal in character and can address the needs of your heart. In the meantime, there are consolations that we can enjoy in life. And uh, we see that here in chapter 4 in particular where uh, Solomon talks about companionship and how companionship is a great consolation to us in the hardships we face in life. The fact that uh, by standing together and encouraging each other and being there for each other, we can help each other through the challenges that we inevitably will face in the course of our lives. That's a, that's a good thing and not to be taken lightly. This is not all about just you and Jesus and nobody else in the room. <laughs> you know, we do need each other and God has given us to one another in order to help us through the challenges we face in life, and that's good. Contentment is also a good thing. We see him refer to that in verse 6 of chapter 4. Better is a handful of quietness than two handfuls of toil and a striving after wind. Godliness with contentment, according to Paul, is what? Great gain. Contentment, companionship, these are beautiful consolations in this life. Nevertheless, nevertheless, we have been made for something more. And this is what Paul is getting to in Hebrews. And by the way, I've just tipped my hand. I believe that the Apostle Paul wrote Hebrews. In Hebrews chapter 11, where we're told in uh, chapter 11, verses, verses 13 through 16, that we look to the great saints of old who lived in this very way that I'm describing for a sense of encouragement. And here he says in verse 13, these all died in faith, referring to those who are the great saints in the Old Testament, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth, for people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland if they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. Eternity in the heart. If you long for eternal things, if you long for the eternal God, you are that person that God is not ashamed to be called your God, their God. Now, C.S. Lewis is a marvelous writer, and he's written a number of things along this very line. I've already noted one of those things, is his definition of the word zenzut. But uh, He's, a, he's good for other reasons, and one of those reasons is that he, has just, he just has, he had a gift for kind of prov providing uh, a, you know, a way or a, a, a sort of a vehicle uh, for communicating truths like this in very palpable and uh, sort of vivid ways. And uh, so what I'd like to do is, uh, as I conclude, quote something from The Last Battle, the last book in the Chronicles of Narnia. And in that part of the story, uh, in the last battle, everybody's dead, which is a great thing. Everybody's dead because now they find themselves in a marvelous place. 
And here we see uh, or hear these words. And as he spoke, referring to Aslan, he no longer looked to them like a lion. But the things that began to happen after that were so great and beautiful that I cannot write them. And for us, this is the end of all their stories or all the stories. And we can most truly say that they all lived happily ever after. But for them, it was only the beginning of the real story. All their life in this world and all their adventures in Narnia had only been the cover and the title page. Now at last they were beginning chapter one of the great story which no one on earth has read, which goes on forever, in which every chapter is better than the one before. If that has sort of whetted your appetite for eternal things, then my purpose has been served. I hope it has. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you that you have made us the way you have. Thank you for placing us in this beautiful world. We don't take it for granted at all. We thank you for all the good things we enjoy here. We know, too, that in this world we have trouble, and we're glad that we have friends and family. You can help us bear up under the, those troubles. We're glad, too, that uh, we have the consolations of your spirit that help us to, to be content wherever we find ourselves and in whatever situation we're in. But Lord, we're even more grateful that you have stirred up a longing for eternal things in our hearts. And we receive that longing as a promise that uh, you will address that longing and satisfy us in ways that we cannot possibly even imagine now. In Christ's name, amen. Thanks for listening. If you want to find out more, check out our website at trinityreformedkirk.com. That's trinityreformedkirk.com. Oh,